Well, not yesterday, but last Saturday, I walked away from a mostly completed sermon in the book of Acts, chapter 16, feeling empty about it, and I felt led to preach in Psalm 2, which many have made comments similar to Elaine, saying that it's what they needed to hear. So it's good to always be assured that I am got the right number with God still. <laughs> um, I returned to my sermon in Acts 16, though, and I still felt that same emptiness. I remember setting aside time on, on Tuesday and just to look over my sermon, and I just couldn't pinpoint my feelings about the subject. I couldn't come up with any words to, I don't know, breathe life into it. And I'm a guy that maybe you, you realize that I'm pretty uh, convicted about the Bible and its ability to preach for itself to impassion preachers and teachers and readers with any and all of its content. So this was frustrating to say the least because I knew I couldn't ignore the book of Acts forever and I didn't intend to. And other, unlike other passages where I've had problems and I, I realized, well, if I have just kept reading and included more text in my sermon, then I'd have the content and the themes I could put together, but I didn't feel released to include more verses with what I had. With the fall of Cabal uh, in Afghanistan and apparently America warring for 20 years there, taking Afghanistan from the Taliban only to give it back, and the persecution of Christians there, I was understandably distracted. Uh, my heart and prayer were centered on them. That plus other news just kept me distracted. So I knew I had a lot against me. Does God want me to preach this? Am I supposed to go somewhere else again? Something in the passage kept eating at me, though. <laughs> and it was eating at me even before last Sunday. And, and it was eating at me in this week. And it actually kept me up tonight, one night. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In fact, I remember, again, not being able to sleep one night. And that was just circulating in my head. What must I do to be saved? So perhaps I'll be still struggling with the next six verses. I had intended to preach this week as well, but I'm not. Just four verses today. So you can pray for me if you think about that as we handle the four verses today and hopefully six verses next week. Hopefully you're in Acts 16, but if you're not, I'll give you time to get there. And the, the context is this, Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy, whoever else was with them, came First to Philippi, they planted a church. Remember, Paul had this vision of a Macedonian man beckoning him so much that Paul had to pass over other locations that he wanted to give the uh, gospel message to. But things went south there after he planted a church. We looked at this poor slave girl who was demonized. She ended up following them around. And like demons did in Jesus' ministry, this demon said, these are servants of the Most High God, in her wacky, demonized movie theater voice. Paul cast the demon out in Jesus' authority, but the people who owned her got their money off of her, and so they literally riled up the town to mob Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas were singled out because they were Jewish. Luke's a Gentile, Timothy's only half Jewish, so apparently they weren't targeted. 
So we got some racial mob violence and some unjust verdicts, all things that I know are foreign to you. You can't fathom how that might even look in our day and age. What you really might not fathom, though, is here is bloody, beaten Paul and Silas sitting in a prison cell, their feet in the stocks. Perhaps they could be taking stock of their emotions, right? Like, why am I even here in the first place? God, why did you call me out here? But it causes them to pray something that you should do when you're low. And then their prayer leads to singing. And they were singing Saved, Saved, which is why I selected that song. No, just kidding. But then another shoe drops. An earthquake happens. And the cell doors break open. And the foundations of the prison are broken. But nobody leaves. And the jailer didn't know that and was about to kill himself rather than be held responsible for an empty jail by Rome. But Paul and Silas stopped him. That's where we're at. I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the Lord's word with me. Just verses 30 through 34 in your Bibles, Acts chapter 16. We read, Then he brought them out, that is the jailer, and said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's, let's pray. Father, as I struggled with these past, this passage, it seems over these last two weeks, I pray that in your providence and in your grace and mercy that I have looked at these texts and I'm bringing out what it is you desire to say. I pray that whatever it is that hits us today, that we would be obedient in the way we respond to you. Father, help us not to neglect things in the Bible that seem small and minimal, but help us to really hear your Holy Spirit. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be glorified most of all. And we pray that all of us would be built up in the faith. Have your way in our hearts and lives, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. As we dive right into the text, there is a question immediately proposed. Where did the jailer hear? What, what did he hear that caused him to ask, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think, at least I've just taken that for granted, but if you actually stop and read the text, Luke never tells us that this is what he knew he needed to ask. The phraseology isn't the first time that that Luke uses it in Acts. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he gives this huge sermon, and he, he drives home the point that those present in Jerusalem, many of them in the physical and immediate sense, were to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus. And verse 37 of Acts 2 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Or later on in Acts, Peter is shown this vision and is commanded uh, by a um, Roman centurion to come before him. His name is Cornelius. And we're told out of his mouth in Acts 10.33, So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That's a very long way of saying, what do I do? (laughs) The question is often asked in the book of Acts, but as for this jailer, how did he even know how to begin to phrase the question this way? We don't know when, where, or how he needed to hear that he needed to be saved. Verse 25 told us that it was after midnight that Paul and Silas had been praying and singing. We're told that this earthquake woke the jailer. Who knows, maybe the jailer had heard Paul or maybe even the church earlier in the city. Maybe he had heard the demonized herald saying, These are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you, The way of salvation, salvation implying people needed to be saved. Maybe through the prayers and singing of Paul and Silas that very night, the jailer had heard a bit before dozing off. Perhaps it's one of those statements that is is thrown around so much in Christianese that we never linger over it. We never wonder more about it saved. I wonder if it's lost its meaning. Because if you think about saved in any other circumstance that we might use it, there are more emotions and pressing emotions, I should say, that are behind it. You've survived a horrible car accident. Your family and friends show up at the hospital and say, I see your car is total. Thank God you're saved. (laughs) You go on a vacation and unlucky you, you show up at the East Coast and the time a hurricane hits, it's all over the news. But your friends and relatives get a hold of you. Oh good, you're saved. Your country is abandoned. Terroristic tyrants who hate Christians take over. So far you're spared and you're saved. Any emotions behind that? We ask a random stranger on the street, are you saved? I typed in English saved as a word search in the ESV. I was just curious. It brought up 108 times uses of the English word saved in the Bible. And I started looking at the verses that the ESV brought up doing my original word search. And in the Hebrew, and I found that the ESV was translating at least two Hebrew words that I could find. Uh, I didn't do the whole Bible for you, I'm sorry. But at least two English words that, that was being saved. In some instances, it was more like to live. Such as Genesis 19.20, in the middle of of the, the Sodom and Gomorrah story where Lot is trying to argue with the angel. He says, Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. (laughs) My life will be saved. The word life is used interchangeably with soul a lot. So Lot could be saying, There my soul shall live. Be saved. I begin to notice that at least in the Old Testament... Another word that the ESV rendered as saved is perhaps what is more thought of, delivered. In fact, the first time the ESV uses saved in the delivered sense is in the book of Exodus, chapter 2. Midianite women who were trying to get water for Jethro's flock 
of sheep. They'd come to a watering hole and some shepherds are not told who precisely, but just shepherds would come and run off the sheep and the daughters. And we're told in Exodus 2.17, the shepherds came down and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. He delivered them and watered the flock. Life. Deliverance. Well, it makes sense to, to check the Greek out probably in the verse at hand. I know it's kind of a weird idea. But the word saved is, could also be healed, preserved, or rescued. One word study would even say to properly to deliver out of danger and into safety. It's used principally of God rescuing believers from the penalty and power of sin and into his provisions or safety. And I wonder if you sense as I do an urgency in the jailer's words that I think is missing at times when we throw around the phrase, are you saved? <laughs> I'm saved. The man's life was spared from an earthquake in a prison where foundations just broke and doors just crumbled. The man was just spared from suicide thinking that he'd be put to death eventually for losing some prisoners. But this man in this moment knew of a more pressing matter. Having survived an earthquake and having survived cause to kill himself, he must know now, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer asks two guys. Two guys who just had quite the wild ride. Accused for what? They don't know. Disturbing the police or or excuse me, disturbing the peace or propagating a religion that was somehow threatening to Rome, but basically for casting out a demon and saving a woman from spiritual bondage. They were accused, beat to a bloody pulp, thrown into a jail, not to mention the earthquake in that jail. But all of this begins to fade for them as the question comes that perhaps they would love to hear. I tell you what, I'm not saying that I want to test this anytime soon, but I'm pretty certain that in the middle of any catastrophe, in the middle of any season of suffering, I would never dismiss, but in fact would welcome with heartfelt gladness this sort of question, right? These are the moments we pray for. This is the stuff we sometimes agonize or stress or feel guilty if we don't have these conversations. And so though Paul and Silas had their feet in the stocks, no longer um, after, uh, I should say, uh, no longer after the earthquake. They don't have their feet in the stocks anymore. But had their feet in the stocks, and in the middle of their legal problems at Philippi, God sends them a convert. Verse 30 again says, Then he, the jailer, brought them out. And the text here, a few verses later, seems to suggest this means probably out of the jail and back to his home. And said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, a welcome conversation after the night they had. In fact, it's, it's what they're in Philippi for. But the night they had, the first question of the jailer after an earthquake and what could have been an escape is on this. What must I do to be saved? It reveals the urgency in the man's heart concerning this subject. It's an urgency that can be missed by us. To make a contemporary illustration, this did not happen, but imagine back in 2015 when we were facing fire. Suppose we just spared a house. Suppose I'm dirty, filled with ash, and maybe there's a question about where another fire might be, and 
maybe were needed. And then somebody who I've been fighting fire with just stops me in my tracks. Hey, how can I be saved? (laughs) It would be a welcome question for any Christian, no matter any time it's asked. But if it's asked at a time like that, we know it must be pressing on their heart. (laughs) Isaiah 55, I preached on it a time or two. The the first uh, verses, at least, opens up with salvation. Come who thirsts, who has no money, come buy and eat. Why don't you buy things that satisfy? Verse 6 in that same chapter states, Seek the Lord. Excuse me, I'm used to flipping during verses. (laughs) Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. People wonder about that statement. Are there times when God can't be found? (laughs) Uh, where he isn't near, perhaps life's circumstances might direct some people to not lean into him. People who are fat, rich, and distracted with things that temporarily satisfy. I can't conjecture anymore on the life of the jailer, only that he knew he needed to be saved. He wanted to be saved. It was urgent that he'd be saved. And perhaps all it takes for us to realize that urgency is the Word of God, is God, is our sin. Isaiah, that same prophet I just quoted, tells us of his response when he saw the Lord and the Lord commissioned him in Isaiah 6, verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Excuse me, the King, the Lord of hosts. When a person gets a glimpse of the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, not much explaining is needed, (laughs) really. Maybe this is why I was so frustrated with this passage, is because just simply put as far as Luke is concerned, hey, this Gentile pagan jailer asked Paul and Silas, how does he get saved? And Paul and Silas told him, and I'm left scratching my analytical overthinking head, But who told him? (laughs) How did he know? What does he mean precisely? How does he frame it like that? How does he know he needs to be saved? And the reality is this. Sure, the gospel accounts and acts and other parts are wrought with passages in which people are convicted of their sins. But we also know this, that God just needs to show up and people should get the idea. It's like knowing instantly when someone makes more or less money than you, their clothes, their vehicle, their possessions, how they look. When God shows up, there is holiness, purity, righteousness, sovereignty, power. He is so far better than me, so far untainted than I am, that I know He has every right to slay me where I stand, so I must know how must I be saved. Verse 3 And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. The reality of God, His sheer existence does prove the necessity of our needing to be saved. It only takes a few seconds for our brains to put things together. Let me give you an illustration or an example. Um... If I'm out walking in the woods up here and I, and I see a bear, a few things happen immediately. Perhaps this. I realize it's much stronger, faster, and an untamed creature than I am. 
Perhaps I realize I'm on foot, I have no whip, weapon, and so I immediately consider my options, staying quiet still, or hoping he hasn't seen me, or finding a tree to try and climb, or a place to try and hide, to quietly make distance, to head in the opposite direction. Now, all of that happens perhaps almost instantaneously and simultaneously. I take stock of the creature's build, his attributes, and what that creature means in relation to me and how I should respond. When God reveals himself, we know a few things instantly right then and there. There is a God. He made the heavens and earth. He's transcendent. He's all-powerful. He's holy. He's righteous. He's blameless. He made us. That means we're His possession. We owe Him our lives. We owe Him our answers. As Creator of the world, He is also Judge. And He is a righteous Judge. He is a worthy Judge. And He is, by His existence, our Judge. We take stock of our Creator, and thus we take stock of our own position. We've sinned. We've broken His law. We've corrupted His creation. We've offended His very nature. And we come back to what um, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. This is the gospel. It's not where you calculate your options. <laughs> Find yourself unarmed and ill-equipped before a bear, so how must I make a best attempt at escaping? But rather, we come face to face with God, and the only hope we have before Him is if He offers a way out from under what's due us. Wrath, punishment, the just and right consequences for our unholiness our arrogance and our sin. And thankfully, God is not a bear. (laughs) God is not wanting to strike and kill prey. No, rather, God has made Himself vulnerable. God has conceded. And He came and He served His very creation who has so offended and wounded Him. But as I said earlier elsewhere in Acts, Luke recorded where Peter was asked the same question, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart by what Jesus had done to them. Or had done to save them, I should say. And Acts 2.22 says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God became man and we killed him. God presented himself to us, emptied of power, emptied of divinity, and we took advantage of that in the most horrible of ways. But it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Peter says. There was a plan in this. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God has made him, verse 36, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We were told as far as the jailer is concerned with Paul and Silas back in Acts 16.32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Perhaps with similar content with what Peter said, the jailer in his household will be baptized in the next verse. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Urgency. As I looked in the Old Testament where the ESV used saved, digging up things like life and deliverance, but we also find in the New Testament people like John, Paul, and Jesus have wonderful illustrations that we find. It's like moving from slavery and bondage into freedom and deliverance. It's like moving from death to life. It's like moving from darkness into light. It's like moving from lies, conceit, and deceit out into truth. It's like moving from lost and out in the wilderness to being found back in the fold. It's, it's moving from thirst and hunger to thirsting no more and being filled. It's moving from performance and guilt to reception and grace saved. And so what that means is that if you feel enslaved, dead, in darkness, living in lies and deceit, or lost, and or you're thirsty and you're hungry, and all you do is perform, I have good news for you today. You can be saved from all that. You can be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. A letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. I believe that uh, Paul actually probably wrote this in his first missionary journey. We're in the middle of his second one in Acts. But in Galatians, Paul defines the belief in Jesus, the, the connection of the believer to Jesus in Galatians 5-6 as faith working through love. Because just how when presented with the reality of God, we should know things so we put our faith and belief in God, that should do something in our lives as well. Because if we believe in Jesus and believe that He is our Savior and Lord, gratitude moves people to do things. Connection to God, which uh, the Bible, Isaiah, that guy again, tells us that we were made for God's glory. And so when reconnected to God, it should show up. It's like a laptop that's been sitting around for years. Imagine you find out that the only thing that's been wrong is that the power adapter doesn't work. And so when you get a new one, you plug it in, voila, it works. So when you and I are returned to our divine purpose in life, we work. Faith works through love. Now that's a lot better than performing through guilt. Because belief is abstract or mental assent. I mean, you might say, I believe, I don't know. You might say, I believe ice cream is good. Okay, I may not get to weigh that until I see you eat ice cream next. So belief in God isn't always instantly verifiable or testifiable. I just made that word up. But uh, one way it's testifiable, that wonderful word, is baptism. Verse 33 of our text says, And he, the jailer, took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Early church father John Chrysostom said he washed and was washed. He washed them from their stripes and was himself washed from his sins. Paul and Silas had had a night of horrible 
beating. A riot had ensued. They were the targets. We don't know if they had suffered any wounds in the earthquake too, but Paul and Silas had given the jailer the word of God, freedom from sins, salvation from damnation, the reunion of the soul to God. You know, Jesus, when He walked the earth, Luke 8.21 says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And suddenly Gentile jailers and Jewish teachers who were just hated widely from anti-Semitic riot in Philippi, suddenly they're brothers. Paul also in his letter to Galatians 6.10 writes, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Saved also moves a person from lost and stranger to citizen and saint and part of the family of God. But also that first remark from Jesus in Luke 8.21, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Makes me believe a few things about the reality taking place back here in Acts 16. Some have seen a few occasions. It happened with Cornelius's house. It happened at Lydia's house. And now at this jailer's house that entire households are getting baptized. And some have asked, well, are entire houses saved when the hosts are converted? Does the baptism do the saving? Like, if I'm saved, is that by virtue meaning that Christy, Calvin, and Landon are saved no matter what their faith status is? And I would say the rest of Scripture says, no, that's not how it works. Jesus says those who hear the word of God and do it are saved. My point is, is if households are saved... Novel idea could be that because the entire household believed. (laughs) I don't think the host is just saying, hey, everyone get baptized and do it if you don't want to do it. I think everybody is hearing the gospel and they're getting baptized because they all believe personally. Urgency in wanting to be saved. Urgency. Belief in Jesus that translates to action. Faith working itself out in love. Testifying to that belief. Baptism. Accepting fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, becoming part of the family. And then there is another mark of the Christian present in these four verses. Verse 34, then he, the jailer, brought them, Paul and Silas, up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Dare I say this to a bunch of stoic Quakers, farmers, retirees, and the like. That the Christian life is actually one of emotion. (laughs) God made us emotional beings before the fall, just saying. Rejoicing and feasting. I'm reminded of Jesus' parable of the prodigal. Luke 15, verses 22 through 24 says, The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. When a person is saved, when a soul is ransomed from salvation, when someone moves from darkness to light and death, I dare say there is cause for celebration. We're coming up to autumn, and I don't know if you know this about me, but I kind of like it. Um, yes, nice scenery, changing leaves, pumpkin spice, blah, blah, blah. But for me, I really like autumn because as a kid, my family got together a lot. 
My mother's birthday is September 5th. My dad, myself, and my brother all have birthdays in October. Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. It was just family getting together one evening after another and having the whole family around the table. Uncles, aunts, cousins, mills, feasting and joy. It was just heartwarming. And I just understand this connection of joy to feasting. Now I know there's a lot of families like, Thanksgiving, I don't want the cops to show up again. (laughs) That wasn't my family. We actually liked each other. The Bible is not lost to this imagery about the table. Besides the fact that Adam and Eve messed it up while eating the wrong food, (laughs) and history consummating in a marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus' parables are all about inviting people to wedding feasts, dining at the table with the patriarchs and so forth. So it's only fitting that like with Zacchaeus or Matthew or the prodigal son, that after Jesus ascends, people are still celebrating at the table. Whether it be lunch or dinner, I would encourage you as you pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for the joy it is to be saved, to be in your family, to have been invited to your family. Thank you for the joy of inviting others to the family of God. You know, as we as we do come upon fall and, uh, and the holidays, I invite you to make that a central part of your feasting and your prayers. Lord Jesus, thank you that we're saved. And just how Silas and Paul got a break from all their drama, from the rioting, the beating, the imprisoning. So I want to encourage you, yes, there is much to pray about, and I don't say the following to dismiss as we think about especially the Afghan Christians. But may God grant you a break. A break from 2020, a break from 2021. It would be great if that break came in the form of a Philippi jailer, a new convert. Glory be to God if that's the case. But in any case, my homework for you to this week is to take a break. Feast. Be glad that you're saved. If your president isn't in power, if the government or various policies and mandates aren't to your liking, whatever the case may be, You are saved. (laughs) You are saved. You and God are good in Christ Jesus. Paul writes memorably to this very church where he's at, as Paul later is sitting in prison. He seems to have a problem with prison in Philippi. And he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known. Some translations say gentleness. Be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know about this word rejoice in Acts 16.34? It's not a Greek word used by secular Greek writers. Luke, our author, who also uses it in his gospel account. When Jesus' mother Mary, after learning she's been tasked to give birth to God in the flesh, kind of a big weight on her shoulders, and after she's learned that people will likely ridicule her and think her to be unfaithful to Joseph and pregnant before marriage in a very strict culture, that Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Or we're told in Luke 10.21 that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's a God-sourced, it's a God-centered joy. 
It's a joy, I imagine, that makes some Christians able to pray and sing inside prison walls with their feet in stocks. It's a joy available to you today because you're saved. Remember the urgency. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from sin. And because you've believed, you've come into the family of God. So are you testifying to that belief? Are you acting and living out like a brother or sister of Jesus? And are you rejoicing? Rejoicing in your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we uh, sometimes forget something that is so essential of our standing before you. Um, sometimes like we might grow up in our own households and I know I, I grew up in a, very, in a household that is very much unlike, sadly, the norm for our day and age, which seems to be broken houses, broken families. But I grew up and it would be easy for me to take advantage of that upbringing and to not consider what everybody else is going through and then to lose sight of the joy it was to be part of the earthly family I was a part of. In the same way, Father, help us not to pass over being saved from from what we deserve, really. As Jim testified before the message, help us to own it personally, that you are my God. Jeremiah says, the Lord, my righteousness. Father, um, help us to live out that identity of being saved. Father, help us to also to take joy. Many of us claim to be Christians, but we walk around all the time like our best friend died. Um, Father, if we're truly saved, that reality should do something in our heart and our mind. It should transform us. It should allow us to be joyful from the stocks and in prisons, as it were. So help us to be joyful and to take hold of the joy that you give us. You tell us that that's a fruit of the Spirit. Thank you for all you do. We ask and we pray that we would use this message in our hearts and our lives this coming week and the months to come. We love you and we ask and pray all this in your name. Amen.